Welcome everyone, and congratulations to Sydney Ideas on 10 years of contributing to knowledge. I'm Omi Tafigian, and I'm lecturer, researcher, and community advocate based here at the University of Sydney. My work combines philosophy with interests in rhetoric, religion, popular culture, transnationalism, displacement, and discrimination. My current roles include teaching for the Writing Hub, Honorary Research Associate for the Department of Philosophy, Committee Member for MAP, Minorities and Philosophy, Faculty at Iran Academia, Board Member for Powerhouse Youth Theatre, Campaign Manager for Why Is My Curriculum White Australasia, and Project Executive for Religion, State and Society Network. I also contribute to community arts and cultural projects and work with asylum seekers, refugees and young people from Western Sydney. It's an honour to chair Assistant Professor Umut Azak's talk, Turkey under the AKP, Continuity and Change in Islam, Secularism and Democracy. I should mention that you can tweet tonight if you want to engage with social media, and I'll ask Meredith to maybe um, put up the, uh, the, the tweets. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, they'll, they'll come up in a, in a minute. Um, but I also want to start tonight by introducing um, the RSS network. Then I'll introduce the speakers. Um, well, uh, associate, Assistant Professor Isaac, and then the respondent, uh, Dr. Tetensor. We'll f followed by that will be Q&A, and, um, and I'm looking forward to a very compelling, riveting um, engagement tonight. Tonight's lecture is part of the Sydney Ideas um, events here at the University of Sydney, which is a public program uh, of talks, lectures and forums that has been running for 10 years now. Over the years, RSS has been cooperating with Sydney Ideas to organise many successful events. Sydney Ideas has generously provided a platform for religion, state and society, invited speakers from around Australia and abroad. And I'd like to extend a special thank you to Meredith Hall and the Sydney Ideas team for their passionate support and interest in our work and vision. Together we have showcased the work of a range of people, including academics, activists and artists. RSS is an inter interdepartmental and multidimensional network of scholars from the Faculty of Arts and community advocates who are deeply invested in the cultures and communities who are researched and written about. Associate Professor Lily Rahim from the Department of Government and International Relations here at the University of Sydney is the convener and founder of the network and together with other dedicated committee members she has aimed to initiate new institutional, community and cultural relationships. We also build on ex uh, existing cross-disciplinary research co collaborations between academics and students based at various departments and schools within FAS, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. People who are engaged in research on religion, state and society relations in Muslim-majority states and their diasporas. Areas of specialisation are the Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia, Europe and Australia with focus on the intersections between theology security, sociocultural themes, feminism, governance, marginalisation and artistic expression. Since the formation of RSS in 2011, we have organised four major symposia, a large number of seminars, workshops, forums, joint publications, book launches, a film festival and other major public events. Through the years, RSS has received various university and external grants. So what's important about RSS is that we argue that 
analysis of religion is integral to the many conversations about democracy, citizenship, gender, social justice, and cultural identity. In our research, we show how these interdependent factors are interpreted and embedded within an inclusive wasatiya, or middle path, discourse, rooted within the socio-political and, um, and cultural sensibilities of the Muslim world. Please check the RSS website for future plans. We have a lot of symposia, workshops, seminars, community events, and also a youth fellowship initiative, community associate programs, and transnational com collaborations to announce there. As part of our community research programs, uh, Assistant Professor Isaac is giving a talk at the Free University of Western Sydney tomorrow. If any of you are free, the talk is uh, entitled Freedom of Belief, Re uh, Religion and the Secular State in Turkey. Now the location is at the Bankstown Art Centre at 6pm. Please uh, see the RSS website for details. So let me welcome our um, speaker and respondent for tonight. Assistant Professor Umut Azak graduated in political science and international relations at um, Boazici University, Istanbul, and completed her PhD in the Department of Turkish Studies at Leiden University. She has taught and researched at Sabanci University, Leiden University, Utrecht University, and the Institute for the Study of Islam in the Modern World in Leiden. We just missed each other. Um, she was a 2008-2009 Fellow of the Berlin-based research program Europe in the Middle East, the Middle East in Europe. Uh, she's currently Assistant Professor at the Department of International Relations, Orkan University, Istanbul. Her research focuses on the transformation of secularism and Islamism in Turkey. She's also the author of Islam and Secularism in Turkey, Kemalism, Religion and the Nation State, published in 2010. I'll introduce um, Dr. David Tittensor um, at this stage. Uh, Dr. Tittensor is research fellow at the UNESCO chair to the UNESCO chair for cultural diversity and social justice at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization, Deakin University. David undertook his PhD at Monash University, 2007 to 2011, where he completed an ethnography of the Turkish Muslim transnational education movement known as the Gulen movement. During the course of his studies, he won the prestigious Endeavour Award for Turkey, which enabled him to spend a year in Turkey between 2008 and 2009. His dissertation explored the movement's religious, ideotheology, and its impact on the movement's educational activities, and whether the movement should be characterized as a philanthropic civil society organization. His research interests are transnational Muslim movements, Turkish politics and society, and religion and development. He's the author of The House of Service, The Gulen Movement and Islam's Third Way, Oxford University Press in 2014, and with Matthew Clark, Islam and Development, Exploring the Invisible Aid Economy, 2014. So the title for tonight's talk is Turkey under the AKP, Continuity and Change in Islam, Secularism and Democracy. And it's a privilege to introduce uh, Assistant Professor Azak. Welcome. Thank you uh, for this nice introduction. I would like to begin my uh, talk thanking to those who created this great opportunity today 
Uh, I'm grateful to Omid, uh, to Nasser, and especially Lily for their invitation and arrangement of this meeting. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, uh, especially because it's my second time in Sydney and I was listening. I remember Professor Esposito in the framework of Sydney events uh, here in this, uh, not in this building, but in the other building. And now I'm speaker, so it's, I'm especially proud of it. Uh, I would actually th uh, thank my aunt and <laughs> who host, who is hosting me uh, here in Sydney, but uh, somehow they couldn't come because of the traffic jam or I don't, maybe they are lost around. Um, and my mother joined me as well. Uh, so maybe they can anytime enter, <laughs> so you'll see them. Uh, but as my mother is here, I would like to begin my speech with a childhood memory with my mother. It was in the late 1980s. Uh, we were in the kitchen and I was asking my mother uh, to check whether I was doing well while citing some verses from the Quran by heart. I remember her shock. <laughs> uh, not because I was trying to memorize those verses, but because I was trying to memorize the, their Turkish translations. It was much more difficult to do so. Normally we memorize uh, Arabic ones, but it was difficult to cite Turkish translations by heart. And my mother was for the first time hearing the meaning of those verses that she knew only in Arabic. The reason why I was doing this was a discussion I had with my professor, religion teacher in school. Together with a classmate, we had rejected to memorize Quranic verses in Arabic. Our argument was that it made no sense to do so without understanding any word. Our teacher resisted at the beginning. He said, no, impossible, how will I grade you, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But when we insisted, he found a solution uh, to the problem uh, of how to grade us. So he said, then you will memorize the Turkish versions. So why uh, I told you this strange story. <laughs> Uh, there are a few remarks that I want to draw from this story. First, unlike my mother, I had to take compulsory religion courses in the secondary school. Uh, my mother had studied uh, when in the, in the 50s, and back then, at least in the secondary school, she didn't have to take it. The religion courses were not compulsory, but in my case it was. Secondly, my religion teacher, who was actually an open-minded person, capable of conducting a rational debate with uh, his rebellious students, so we were lucky in that sense, uh, was a graduate of theology faculty in a state university. Here they are. Buraya gelebilirsiniz. They just missed my story, so, <laughs> so I go sit there. <laughs> so in Turkey of my childhood, which preceded the new Turkey of the Justice and Development Party, AKP after the Turkish acronym, the secular state had not discarded religion at all. Several scholars studying secularism in Turkey have been trying to revise the polarized portrayal of uh, the secular state versus Muslim society under the Kemalist regime. Uh, 
as one of the authors of a book that I also contributed, argued, a nationalized Islam was part of the formal education and was used as an instrument for nation building, especially the military junta uh, government of the early 1980s when I was a secondary school student. Uh, the government actively used religion by adopting what was called Turkish Islamic synthesis as the official ideology. Curricula of the schools were reshaped for creating obedient uh, political subjects whose religious values would block the spread of extreme, dangerous, left-wing ideologies. The story began even earlier. And what can be called, quote unquote, uh, state Islam has been an integral part of the Kemalist regime since the beginning of the Republic. Though it sounds contradictory, this was how Turkish secularism was shaped and institutionalized. I will argue in this lecture that this particular characteristic of Turkish secularism is the key for understanding the current fragility of the secular regime in the hands of the AKP government. Today, all the AKP leaders do claim that they do not challenge secularism. Recently, for instance, the parliamentary speaker, an old and respected member of the AKP, Ismail Kahraman, could suggest to remove from the constitution the clause of, about secularism. So he said, we don't need any reference to secularism, we, can, we should have a religious constitution. He could defend himself by arguing that this would be in line with the spirit of the previous and existing constitutions. Kahraman's our parliamentary speaker's statement created a mass reaction and was protested by online petitions, etc., which led the then uh, still Prime Minister um, Mr. Davutoğlu and President Erdogan to correct Kahraman and to reinstate their party's commitment to secularism. So, everyone in Turkey is for secularism. What is change if everyone is secularists? What is changed and what is new under the AKP? Let me go on with a short historical background. Secularism has been at the center of Kemalism, the official ideology of the Turkish Republic. Since 1928, Islam is not the official religion of the state. And since 1937, the principle of secularism has been a non-amendable article of the Constitution. Radical reforms aimed at secularization of, or put it differently, the removal of Islam from the legal, cultural, and political spheres. In 1924, the office of the Ottoman Caliphate and the function of Sheikhul Islam, that is the highest rank in the Ottoman hierarchy of ulema or Islamic scholars, which were the remnants of the Ottoman Empire or the Ottoman era, were all abolished. All Islamic schools, all Islamic seminaries were closed down under the law of unification of education, which imposed a standard secular national curriculum. Religious activity of mystical Sufi Islam uh, they were also outlawed, their lodges closed, Sufi titles, costumes, and ceremonies banned. All these were top-down, harsh measures taken, taken by the Westernist 
and positivists, ruling elite of the time, for creating a modern secular nation-state under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Secularization in the legal sphere benefited most uh, my grand-grandmothers, uh, the female citizens of the Republic, with the adoption of the civis civil code, which replaced the Islamic uh, family law, polygamy was banned, women gained equal uh, rights in inheritance law, and had the right to apply for divorce, divorce, etc. In fact, the new generation of uh, liberated uh, Republican women, removing their veils, sharing the public space with men in their Western-style clothing, symbolized the new Turkey's shift from an Islamic to a modern, secular way of life. In other words, they were the symbols of modernization of Turkey. But there were also other symbolic uh, and critical uh, decisions as well, which reflected conscious, uh, a conscious attempt to make Turkey a part of European Western world and distancing it from the Islamic one. Uh, for instance, the replacement of the Arabic alphabet in 1928 uh, by the Latin one, uh, the adoption of the European clock and calendar in 26, uh, adoption of European numerals and European measure, measures and weights in uh, 1931. These were changes which changed the daily life of people in the name of westernization and secularization. In short, uh, change in these uh, forms, the westernization of these important details of daily life, aimed at the elimination of the Ottoman Islamic heritage and diminishing the influence of Arab and Persian cultures in the new secular uh, republic. <coughs> However, despite these radical reforms of secularization, a complete separation of the state and uh, religion never happened in Turkey. A new institution, uh, which was um, titled the Presidency of Religious Affairs uh, in Turkish Diyanet, İşleri Reisliği, in short Diyanet, uh, was charged in 1924, a year after the foundation of the Republic, with the administration of the mosques and religious personnel. The aim was to control all Islamic activity. But it wasn't only about control. Uh, via this admin administrative body, the government could also formulate and promote a Sunni Islam, a Sunni Islamic belief, in line with the modern nation state. The state Islam has been disseminated by the appointed and salaried preachers of the mosques throughout the country. Uh, meanwhile, unofficial forms of Islam, or those that contradicted with the principles of the regime, were seen as obstacles. To what? Obstacles to modernization, to progress, etc. And hence, internal enemies. And their representatives, in other words, religious leaders who disagreed with the regime and opposed Kemalism, were demonized and pacified. Since then, it has been essential for Kemalist secularism to differentiate these quote-unquote bad Muslims from good ones. Good Muslims were the ones who obeyed the regime and had to, to be protected from those who used religion for their individual and political benefits. 
This was how Kemalist secularism formulated the freedom of conscience. The good Muslims' freedom from radical Islam or Islamism. My point is, uh, in short, Kemalist secularism was and is not against Islam as its supporters keep repeating in vain. The Kemalist state did not pit a total secular ideology against a Muslim conservative society. The state did not remove Islam from the public sphere or privatize it. Instead, it instrumentalized it for nation building as well as for legitimizing the regime in the eyes of its citizens. Especially after the transition to the multi-party democracy in the mid-1940s, the government allocated a large amount uh, of national budget to serve people's religious needs via opening new mosques, Quran courses, introducing religion courses in the curriculum. Then why do the uh, AKP supporters of today portray the Republican past as a dark age when Islam and Muslims were oppressed? What do they mean by Muslims? Are they heir to those bad Muslims? Maybe yes. Uh, AKP leaders are heir to a generation of conservative and later Islamist intellectuals who as self-proclaimed representatives of the Muslim nation challenged Kemalist secularism and opposed Kemalism. Their main difference from Kemalism is the content of their nationalism. <coughs> Theirs, I mean, these uh, AKP leaders, I mean, uh, and former earlier conservative and uh, Islamist intellectuals uh, as the source of their inspiration, theirs is a religious nationalism which prioritizes Islam's place in national identity. Uh, this is different from Kemalist nationalism because it rejects Westernism and Westernization in the cultural sphere and calls for a restoration of an Islamic morality and conservative gender norms. Uh, and it accepts those conservative gender norms as a superior cultural asset, which differentiates Turkish culture from the Western one. Another important dimension of this ideology is the revival of the Ottoman heritage as the main basis of the Turkish national pride. This Ottomanism glorifies the times of the uh, Sultan Mehmet II or the times of the Sultan Suleiman in the 15th and 16th centuries as the golden age of Turkish history. Last but not, not least, this religious nationalism has been combined with a critique of secularism as implemented in Turkey. The alternative secularism that they advocated has, has been centered around the concept of freedom of conscience. This was a critique of Kemalist secularism, rejecting its authoritarian interventions in the public sphere. The foremost example of such Kemalist policies was the ban on the headscarf in university, uh, for university students and state employees until 2013. Another iconic symbol uh, of the state's assertive secularism has been the ban on 
the uh, Arabic call to prayer from 1930s till uh, 1950. So these were and are still seen as the proof of the of how Kemalist secularism contradicted with basic democratic principles. Uh, some scholars, such as Ahmed Kuru, uh, refer to this new secularism of the AKP, emphasizing the freedom of religion and conscience, as an example of passive or liberal secularism, as opposed to the assertive secularism of the Kemalist regime. Uh, recently, Erdogan, Erdogan would agree with this, and Erdogan recently, actually, uh, after the debate uh, triggered by Kahraman, the uh, parliamentary speaker, Erdogan once again dis- described his understanding of secularism as libertarian or maybe I should translate it as freedom-based uh, secularism, which is in line with pluralist dem- uh, democracy. However, today Erdogan's claim about libertarian or freedom-based secularism can convince only the religiously conservative Sunni citizens who constitute the majority of the voting pool of the AKP. These are, these people, Sunni uh, majority, they are the only ones who feel free in the AKP's Turkey. My claim is that the AKP's understanding of secularism is not that far from Kemalist secularism in many respects. First of all, uh, so now I can talk about those continuities and changes that uh, I used in my title. First of all, the so-called freedom-based uh, secularism has never challenged the arrangement of religion-state relations in Turkey. State continued to be involved actively in the religious sphere by even more extending its administrative network. It responded to the religious needs of only Sunni Muslims by increasing the number of mosques of religious broadcasts via official TV and radio channels of Koran schools and introducing extra elective courses, religion courses, in primary and secondary schools. State agencies continue to regulate religion and determine the boundaries of legitimate religious uh, conduct. In other words, the Kemalist state's intervention in religious affairs has been firmly preserved by the AKP government. The AKP has never questioned the role of the Diyanet, the presence of religious affairs, but in fact expanded its capacity. State funding of the institution within the total budget has doubled during, during the 10 years following the year when the AKP came to power. The number of the employed personnel in this institution increased at the rate of 67% between 2004 and 2014. In the same period, in the same period, uh, in 10 years' time, uh, between t- uh, 2004 and 2014, around 9,000 new mosques were built, adding to the existing uh, 70-something, 77,000 mosques. Sunni Islam is still accepted as the basis of national identity, as well as being served and promoted accordingly at the expense of other forms of Muslim and non-Muslim beliefs. Under the AKP government, the state is still not at an equal distance to all religious faiths or no faiths. 
So that was the claim of Erdogan recently. So he claimed that state has equal distance. In secularism, state has, should have equal distance to all faiths. But it's not uh, the case in Turkey. And recently, the European Court of Human Rights found Turkey guilty of violating the religious freedom of Alevis, a non-Sunni Islamic minority in Turkey, and discriminating against them by uh, withholding public funds for Alevi places of worship. They are called Cem Evi, with no objective and reasonable justification. And here is the defense of the Turkish state uh, at the European Court of Human Rights. I quote, Alevism is also Islam, and the place of worship in Islam is the mosque. Uh, thus, the Cemevi, the, the uh, worship uh, place of uh, Alevis, despite its feature as a place where Alevi culture is accomplished, is not a place of worship. As it is clear from the statement, uh, the AKP government continues to violate the freedom of religion of the citizens belonging to the Alevi faith. An important change in the AKP's Turkey uh, is a extreme use of religious idiom in the political sphere. AKP leaders publicly expose their religiosity and frame it as the evidence of their national authenticity. Those who fall out of the circle of the devout Muslims are automatically excluded from this true nation. In their vocabulary, nation is being redefined as the union of believers who are ideally supporters of the AKB. Others, that is the other half of the population, does not matter, but can be any time accused of being traitors or internal enemies. The AKP has been as successful as the Kemalist regime in the single party period in basing the national unity on the fear of internal enemies, either Kurds, communists, or Islamists. Turkish democracy, which was born in the context of Cold War, uh, had preserved this uh, Kemalist political tradition of inventing traitors as a mechanism for eliminating the opposition. During the 1950s and 60s, uh, communists were the victims of several governments' witch-hunting campaigns, and they were blamed for betraying the fatherland. And Islamists, for instance, they were uh, also victims of such accusations, for example, in the 1990s. Today's traitors, however, are those who openly oppose the AKP government's policies. The most notorious example is the so-called parallel organization, which refers to the members of a formal, uh, former ally of the AKP, the Gülen movement, which is studied by my colleague here. They are now the enemies of the government as they expose a huge corruption scandal via illegal recordings of the AKP leaders in December 2013. Since then, there has been a massive purge from the police and judiciary, an extensive restriction and censorship in social media. You can be accused of being a traitor or even a terrorist if you publicly expel, uh, oppose the AKP's new method of dealing with the Kurdish issue. 
This happened in the case of uh, more than 2,000 academics, including myself, who signed a petition inviting the state for ending military operations and creating conditions for restarting the peace nego negotiations with Kurds. Even Islamist intellectuals who dared to criticize the AKP's authoritarian tendencies and Tayyip Erdogan's increasing hegemony over the party are being isolated and excluded from the national media outlets, uh, almost all of them controlled now by the AKP. The current intolerance uh, towards opposing views, as well as the ongoing censorship and auto-censorship of the printed and online press, lead to pessimistic prospects of the uh, future of democracy in Turkey. Lastly, under the AKP government, a particular understanding of Islamic morality imposing traditional patriarchal notions of gender relations is increasingly dominating the public sphere. Several interventions of President Erdogan contributed to further social polarization along these lines. One example was his statement about the need to take official measures against the mixed-sex dormitories and student houses, which, according to him, contradicted with, quote-unquote, uh, our national values and traditions. Or take his, his and actually the uh, government's official fight against abortion and promotion of big families with an emphasis on motherhood as women's foremost duty. All these discourses create an atmosphere where different lifestyles are pitted against each other, while the government privileges the dominant conservative worldview at the expense of others. The AKP was an offshoot of the Islamist National Outlook Movement, which had refashioned itself as conservative democrats, and since then increased its popular support in alliance with liberals, the EU, uh, several Islamic communities. But now, as many political scientists observe, the AKP rule can be described as an electoral authoritarianism. And this electoral authoritarianism um, has such characteristics that, first of all, there is no tolerance to opposition, as I tried to explain. Secondly, there is an exclusionary nationalist and Islamic rhetoric. And thirdly, a limited understanding of democracy as the majority rule. All these characteristics can hardly be reconciled with a libertarian or freedom-based secularism claimed by Erdogan and others. As for conclusion, let me repeat my point about the sad continuity in Turkish politics. It is the heritage of authoritarianism based on an exclusionary definition of the nation as the unit of Sunni Turks and a stubborn will to control and shape people's beliefs on the image of a certain ideal Islam. The past and the present versions of secularism in Turkey are infected by these old diseases. Thank you. Thank you very much for that talk. I remember um, the great talk you gave last year at our conference and um, 
and I was uh, really looking forward to a follow-up today and you delivered very well. Okay. And um, David, it's great to welcome you here to Sydney uh, after meeting you in Melbourne uh, last year and um, it's uh, a pleasure to host you here. Thank you. Yeah, first, firstly, thanks very much for the invitation. It's very nice to be here. I should just preface, and we were actually talking about this before, that I think that the paper has evolved actually beyond the, the paper that I was given to respond to, and I think there's much more, there's much more convergence than um, initially I, I understood in terms of our positions. Um, so please keep that in mind that I was responding to, I think, what was an earlier version, so uh, bear with me in regards to that. So I'd just like to start by saying that, in principle, I think largely I agree with the central premise of uh, Dr. Azak's paper, in that there is definitely continuity in, in terms of where the Archipair is at and where the, the modern public group uh, began, though I do have some reservations and I'll, I'll run through those. Uh, I agree in so far that uh, she's right in that the current practice of Erdogan and uh, the Justice and Development Party, otherwise known as the Archipair, is a continuation of a long-standing authoritarianism that permeates Turkish politics and does hark back to Ataturk. However, where I have some degree of reservation is that, and this was in the paper and probably not explicitly stated here, was that uh, the current situation with AKP is a proof of the failure of the Islamist camp to actually rule democratically. Uh, and uh, Dr. Azak uh, was asserting that the, the secularism of the Kamal's regime, which was assertive, uh, was been replaced by what was initially described as passive uh, secularism, is now a much more assertive brand of secularism, which privileges Islam, which I think was very clear, in that they do with this Sunni discourse. And I certainly wouldn't disagree with the fact that they do have an Islamist agenda, and that is certainly evidenced in a variety of their policies, some of which Dr. Azak talked about in terms of uh, gender relations, and also around banning of alcohol. There was a policy that was brought in in 2013, uh, which remarkably bans the sale of alcohol uh, between the uh, hours of 10, uh, and six, uh, 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. within 100 metres of a school or a mosque, which I think there's 200,000 or so shops which sell alcohol, which means it pretty much um, makes it very difficult. And they also attempted to criminalise adultery. So one couldn't certainly say that they don't have some degree of an Islamist agenda. However, what I'd like to propose is something of an alternative lens, in that the current political, political predicament in Turkey could be viewed in terms that perhaps move beyond the certain secularist-Islamist divide, or in terms perhaps of pure social engineering. And on the issue of social engineering, I'll return to that point in relation to the battle with uh, the Gulen movement, which was um, briefly mentioned. Uh, indeed, the, the current turn towards authoritarianism, for me, is not so much a failure that lies at the heart of, say, the Islamist camp, but rather is a question, I think, more of political culture in Turkey uh, across the board. And uh, this was briefly mentioned the earlier of majoritarianism, but I think there's also another factor which should be um, brought into it, which is the issue of the big man. So I'll just briefly go through what these two characteristics are. The notion of the big man uh, is the concept that comes from uh, Melanesian pidgin words, big paler man, which translates to big fellow man, and is often a concept that is applied to Africa and a lot of the rulers there. It's uh, not a position that is inherited, uh, but is one that is acquired and grows in stature based on the ability of the individual to provide for and protect an ever-growing cohort of followers. Now, as the majoritarian was talked about before, this is the idea that those that get the majority of the vote have the national will and have unrestrained power to do as they please, and is a system that is hostile to civil liberties and press freedom. This combination has existed um, from the beginning of the multi-party period, and is quite apparent when one looks at the parallels between the Democrat Party of the 1950s, which was a splinter group from the People's Republican Party, founded by Ataturk, uh, and when you compare them with the Arke pair. The, I'll refer to them as DP. I, I, I like using acronyms because it's tiring having to sound out the entire name of each of the parties. So I'll refer to the Democrat Party now as the DP. 
So the DP emerged as a response to the authoritarianism of the uh, JHP, which was the People's Republican Party, which was Ataturk's founding party, and positioned itself as the national will versus the state and the saviour of the state. However, rather than move the system towards a more democratic polity, it simply mirrored the culture of its predecessor. And I think this is a really important point, is that it didn't actually change the culture. It simply sort of replicated that which went before, which you pointed out was quite authoritarian, and became a political machine that really served its own interests. And as notable scholars Metin Hepper and Fuat Kamen note, the DP, and I quote, became an organisation interested less in political ideals and more in securing and holding office for its leaders and distributing income to those who ran it and worked for it through patron-client networks and to those who voted for the party through pork barrel grants such as roads, schools, electricity, mosques and the like. And I think many of you who are familiar with the current political situation would see a lot of uh, a lot of uh, current affairs in that particular uh, account of what's going on. So in that particular context, during the 1950s, Menderes, or Adnan Menderes, who was the, uh, the leader then, was the big man at the head of a large clientelist network. And alongside this clientelism was the belief in majoritarianism. And Menderes believed that the majority vote gave him and his party carte blanche, so they could do whatever they liked, basically, and that if anyone went against the party, was acting against the national will. So as a result, when the DP assumed power, and there were some judges that gave unfavourable decisions during that time, and that went to the party's liking, these judges were removed. And again, I think this will resonate with a lot of people about some of the behaviour which has been taking place under the RKP. And uh, later, uh, in, in their tenure, uh, the, they suppressed both intra-party and uh, rival opposition. So what I would like to suggest is that the Arquipé is operating in exactly the same fashion as the DP back in the 1950s, and that actually this is a culture which is pervasive. And this idea, particularly of the big man, is pervasive. If you look at well, most of the political parties, they have uh, very little change of leadership. They all centre around one particular leader, and there's this very much a patron-client network that happens in all of them. Uh, I think there was an article just the other day about Bachelet and about how it's impossible to get rid of him. And, I mean, Denis Baikal, who was the leader of JHP, was very hard to get rid of and took a scandal. So there's very much this pervasive culture within Turkish politics around the big man who runs the party with an iron fist. And so we're seeing this as a continuation, basically, through the whole party political process. And so he takes also, like uh, Menderes, he takes a majoritarian view of politics, um, which was reflected, and I don't think this was really talked about, but it was in the, pre the earlier paper, was the Taksim Square situation. <laughs> Uh, and which led to the Gezi protests. And th th that, that situation with the Gezi uh, situ uh, protest was an absolute perfect example of how Erdogan really doesn't worry about what the public is thinking. He believes that because he won successive elections where they got towards 50% in, in the third election, he has a mandate to do whatever he wants. And so there was no consultation about the changing uh, of, that, of that, uh, the park and the development. And uh, he's uh, quoted as saying that if, when, when there was the uprising against him, that if you don't agree with how I do things, then go win your own election. And I think that really sums up his, his style of governance, is that basically we, we are the party in power, we do what we like. And of course, that he did back down a little bit and there was consultations, but that sort of gives an indication of his mentality. So, uh, and he also, like the DP, engages in what I would call clientelist politics, and, the fun and that functions on favours, the sharing of wealth with followers, and I think this was spectacularly brought out with the recent corruption scandal, which was allegedly undertaken by the Gulen movement, which I'll get into a bit later. 
2013, which saw the sacking of or the, the resigning of a number of ministers and MPs. And they used kickbacks to invest uh, in strategic locations in the form of infrastructure projects such as roads, subways, and buses, which makes me think of a funny story from when I was actually living in Turkey some years ago during my PhD research, which uh, Ahmed referred to, is that I used to notice in Ankara the streets were actually really poorly maintained. Always the, the pavement was always broken. And I used to joke to my friends, why is, this, why is it like this? And they said, well, why don't you go out to some of the more flung, far-flung parts of uh, the cities or in the rural regional areas, and you'll find they have beautiful footpaths. Well, indeed, one time I was in Istanbul, and I was out in Büyükçekmece, which is a really, really far-flung part of, of Istanbul, and they really did. They really they had amazing footpaths. And as, uh, as those who are more familiar with Turkey will know, the further out you go, probably the more religious you'll find the population is. So you don't have to really put two and two together to feel, figure out that it's those religious cliques of people that are getting the, the biggest investment in terms of infrastructure. Uh, and there are, there's a myriad of other examples. There's questions of giving wood and coal out during election runs to try and drum up support. So the money and these kickbacks are going into investing in their, their own networks and their own people. Um, and, so, and further alongside that, we can see that this, um, you know, this, this big man mentality has also played out in the recent, recent politics around the removal of uh, former Prime Minister Ahmed Davidoglu. Uh, which was foreshadowed by the stripping of his powers uh, at, the, at the, the board meeting, where he could no longer appoint um, deputies within the, within the party. And uh, the fact that now, and even more telling, is the people who are in frame to actually take over that position. One of most notably is uh, Berat Albayrak, which happens to be his son-in-law. So that, uh, although Benali Yildirim is, I think, in first place, but he's certainly in the frame of about three or four people t to replace him. So what you can see is these networks he's establishing and putting very trusted people in place, and this is not really much different, I think, what was going on before uh, from parties gone by, for people trying to shore up their, their support. Now, another element um, which I have some reservations about is when we talk purely in terms of instrumentalization of Islam, social engineering, and creeping Islamization, which, again, I don't think you used particularly in the current talk, but it's in, in the paper, so I do apologize if there's a disjuncture. Um, the notion that I think AKP is seeking to purely like, re-Islamize, I think, is something of a misnomer in, in uh, some of the scholarship which is being done. And I've written on this quite extensively in my own work, particularly in my book, in the sense that uh, it's, I find it difficult to con contemplate the idea of a re-Islamization in a country where Islam never really went away. Islam has actually been suppressed quite, quite remarkably in Turkey with multiple party closures and so on. Uh, so they've actually been forced out of the public sphere to a large extent, in my mind. So when, you, when, you, when we talk about so-called re-Islamization, I actually see what's happening with the filtering through of Islamic politics or Islamically-oriented politics as more of a normalization of the democratic polity rather than a re-Islamization. So that's just a point of difference. And then, yeah, so in relation to the idea of social engineering, I, I suggest a degree of caution as well in that the claim is due to the fact that Arkepair has had a spectacular falling out, which was referred to with the, the Gulen movement. And really, the Gulen movement, if you were going to be really purely and utterly orientated on social engineering, that they're, they're a perfect ally in that particular regard. They're now, uh, in 2000, they were supposedly had 4 million people on the ground. I've seen other uh, texts which now suggest 8 to 10 million people involved in the Gulen movement, and that doesn't include necessarily sympathizers. And they were very financially very powerful, valued at 25 billion with banks, media outlets, um, uh, you know, uh, hospitals, and a network of over several hundred schools. Uh, they had their Dersana network, which was 1,600 Dersanas. 
uh, out of 4,000. Uh, so they had an sprawling network, and their whole mission is actually to reinvigorate and re, you know Islamic society. So really, to think that that's purely their orientation when they had this falling out, I think that brings that somewhat into question. And because they've really now been brought low ever since that uh, the, the allegation, I say it's alleged because I don't think we actually have any hard evidence to suggest that the prosecutors that brought the corruption scandal, who I believe now have fled to Armenia through Georgia, um, we, we, they're alleged to be Gulenist, but that's not necessarily proven. And so as a result of that, they tried to shut down the Dasana network. The, as I said, the 1600 strong Dasana network. Uh, as a, a t attempt to deprive them of revenue stream because some of the courses over there cost $4,700. So that's like several million dollars. Almost done. Uh, several million dollar revenue stream. If you think there's two million students, they've, they've, they've taken over their flagship newspaper, uh, Zaman, which is just recently. And I, I, recent, I heard that they're not actually going to continue to use it as a government uh, newspaper. They're actually shutting it down for good. Um, uh, happy to hear if someone has any further news on that. And they've also... Um, uh, been trying to even uh, bring them low overseas by trying to get their schools shut down overseas and so on. So really, uh, and they ran down their bank, Bank Asia. So they've basically tried to cripple the movement completely. So I think this really uh, goes back to the idea of the characters I talked before about the big man, which is we're shoring up your networks and getting rid of, and you mentioned this to some extent as well, so I think there's a, as there's a degree of convergence between our positions, certainly on the authoritarianism, that it's really about getting rid of anybody who is in opposition. And, for, for example, they're Hanafi, they're Sunni, they're not contradictory in terms of their form of Islam. There's photos of Erdogan and Gulen, uh, which can be found sitting together. So I think it's, it's probably more complicated than simply pitting it against secularism versus Islamism. I think this is a more pervasive political culture, which is at the heart of the democratization problem in Turkey. And I would say that that's the issue of continuity, is that there's this authoritarian tendency that runs through the political process, which hasn't really been uh, weeded out. And so it's a deficit of democracy rather than a conflict, I think, specifically between um, you know, religion versus secularism in, in Turkey. And I think that's where I'll, I'll leave it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for two rich rigorous and enlightening talks, um, talk and response. Uh, I'll, we've got quite a few minutes for questions, so I'll uh, open it to the floor. Both of you said that Turkey has a problem with being a democratic country, and, and I'd like to know why, from both of you, why do you think that's the case? What's wrong? What's missing? Why couldn't Turkey become a democratic country? Uh, because it's not easy, I mean, so it's not a democracy. Uh, if you look at the world, different uh, countries in the world, democracy maybe is an exception. So it's not uh, an easy thing uh, uh, to establish democracy. And uh, my personal answer to that, kind of, uh, I don't know, really personal answer to this, uh, would be that democracy was never wanted. So it was, it always remained a kind of slogan there, but, was it work? No. All right. uh, but political leaders uh, never really wanted it. You know, they, the all the opposition, no, no, no, the mechanism works like this. Once, yeah. Yeah. Okay. once you're in the opposition, you want democracy. But once you have power, you do not want. But you 
claim that you are demanding. So that's the <laughs> rule of the game. So that explains also the case of Erdogan, because they were holding the flag of democracy you know, uh, before the establishment of, two, uh, of the party in 2001, and they were, I mean, they did a lot. They, uh, there made improvements made, uh, during the first years of their rule, uh, but gradually, you know, while in power, they tended to forget those uh, uh, promises about democracy, because Maybe that's the uh, mechanism of uh, power, and once you have it, you want to be along the tradition of strong men. What, yeah, what, what, that, what about the people? Don't they want it? Don't, don't they have it? Uh, people. Yeah, I, I think it's difficult <laughs> what people want in Turkey. There is a, a strong, as you said, actually, uh, the, the tradition of. Uh, I can call it paternalism. You know. uh, the, uh, the will, uh, the demand for a strong leader, a father figure, is very strong in Turkey. Uh, and even if you think of the uh, name given to Mustafa Kemal, uh, in the name he chose in 1930 for as the surname, his Atatürk, father of Turks. Uh, so he was not sultan, maybe, <laughs> anymore like the Ottoman <laughs> dynasty, but uh, the tradition of the dynasty was there. Like in the uh, Ottoman era, people continued to see and frame the lead political leader as father. And Atatürk knew about that, maybe that's why he chose that name. Uh, and that tradition continued. Uh, later on, in a new who replaced him, tried to be a father, but he was not being accepted. <laughs> then the oppose, uh, opposition party, DP, that you mentioned, the leader uh, of the Democratic Party, Adnan Menderes, played the game. So he was seen as the father of the nation, the savior. And later, all the leaders of uh, center right governments and political parties played the same game. And now it's uh, Erdogan, maybe he's the most successful one in that sense. Uh, and maybe he's not only father, like the, he's now adored by all female supporters, and uh, people are really in love with him, literally. In love with him. <laughs> so it's not a um, scientific answer to what you said, but these are all, uh, mean, the, the, even in the literature, there's a strong emphasis on this issue of paternalism, paternalistic political tradition, uh, going back to the Ottoman era. Thanks for that um, answer, and thank you for your concise and precise question. Uh, I might give it to David if you have any additional comments. Well, yeah, I can, I can second that. I, I think that it's a, it's a, the deficit of, de deficit of democracy is not something which is just at the, the supranational level. It's also at the party level. Uh, as I mentioned, if you look at most of the political parties, if you look at the, the leaders of those parties, they've been in, at the head of those parties for an exceptionally long time. I mean, Kilic Tarolo is relatively new in terms of being you know, head of the JHP. I mean, Baikal was there for, I think he even tried to come back at one stage. Bachelet, I mean, has been for as long as I can remember. Uh, and none of them really brook any challenge to, to their rule. And they, as I said, they rule much like Erdogan does with an iron fist. So when you, when you look at it in terms of the actual parties, and you think of Mehepe, Jehepe, Akepe, which are the three major parties, um, they haven't internalized the democratic principles. 
and, and they have their patron-client networks as well. Uh, and the, the only reason I think that we haven't seen the kind of majoritarian sort of authoritarianism that we're seeing with DP and with AKP is because it's been very rare that you've had a party rule in its own right. Turkey has been racked with instability, a lot of coalition governments and so on. So that hasn't really come through. But what you do see is you do see this maniacal hold of power by key figureheads within those parties. So, if, I mean, if you're in an alternative universe, you, you, you did have one-party rule with those other parties, I would not be surprised if you saw the same tendencies play out in terms of not brooking challenge from opposition, suppressing, you know, papers, you know, dismissing and purging the judiciary and so on. This happens time and time again. So I think it's actually that... I think you're, you're right. They play lip service to democracy to get into power, and once they get into power, they don't want to relinquish it. So I think there has to be a fundamental change, um, you know, from within the party machinery uh, as well as within the, the leadership. And um, I actually have a PhD student who's working on this very problem at the moment. And interestingly, in the organizational and business literature, they find that this kind of paternalistic father figure also transpires in corporate culture in Turkey. So it's, it's quite pervasive that people like the idea of a strong person. Uh, and it's probably that there's got to be some sort of cultural shift away from that, which needs to translate into the political sphere. I hope that answers your question. The EU seems to be a, a key element in the way Erdogan's able to operate, and he's got them blackmailed at the moment because of the refugee movements from Syria. And for that, we've got the Americans to thank and uh, their allies. If we see a strong EU emerge out of its current chaos, do you think Erdogan will still be the strong man going forward? And the second part is, history will tell us, even the Romans going back there, politics and religion are very good allies because it's useful, but they also self-destruct. So, will he self-destruct or will the EU strengthen and push him over the edge eventually and maybe move back to a middle version of this strongman business? that is the weakness of EU uh, which is the cause of this current uh, situation so uh, even if the EU you know, has united and strong uh, I don't um, think that they can struggle with you know, Erdogan because it, it, we are now in Turkey on a track really on a track which leads up to a true authoritarianism uh, it's really one man show and all the our parliamentary democracy is in danger and the constitution will change soon. <laughs> I wouldn't, I mean, maybe two months ago I wouldn't talk this way every day, so my, I, change, I can't change my, my paper every day in Turkey. Because <laughs> every day some, we can be still surprised every single day hearing what he says, what he thinks. And if all the political discussions now in Turkey, in different public fora, uh, are about what he thinks. You know, serious intellectuals, journalists come together and they discuss what he thinks right now. So, because in order to predict tomorrow, we need to know what he wants. So it's really, uh, um, I, I don't think that you know, EU can stop that. If it, it is stoppable, you know, it will be stopped by a serious opposition, which will be united in Turkey. Not EU has to unite, but the opposition in Turkey. But it's not the case right now. The opposition forces 
so the ambition, on, yeah? sorry, so the ambition to become part of the EU is now on the back burner. He's uh, not that interested support anymore. For it, the public support for the EU has also diminished because people like the idea to be independent and a strong nation. Mm -hmm. yeah? So the uh, recent surveys from that, you know, the interest in the EU is a lot. So and the EU is not in a really uh, uh, a remarkable situation. So it's not really uh, the situation with Greece, etc. You know, people are not uh, very excited about the EU right now. Uh, but uh, rather than the EU, the EU as a pressure has been always good for democracy in Turkey, so it worked. Uh, but now what we need, I think, is a strong opposition within the country, you know, despite his rise, you know, despite his uh, increasing hegemony, you know, the, the opposition still can do something. There's always a space for maneuver, you know. Uh, we play the game of democracy in the end, you know, even though we don't believe in it. You know, we we use that uh, flag of democracy while in opposition. Now uh, that can be played, and things can change in Turkey. Hopefully, you know, that's what I would prefer uh, for, for a change, mm -hmm. a real change in Turkey, okay. not the pressure of EU. Okay. Thank you. Kind of easy question. As we walked in, there was a uh, picture on the uh, display here. Um, can we get that one again? Um, uh, a photo from a meeting. Sure. Um, if you remember, my question is why that photo? If that photo is aimed to reflect what AKP is all about, it's a lie. Because that photo is stage one, because a meeting before there was not one Turkish flag. Because that crowd is not interested in Turkish flag at all. So this photo. Um, is a very bad selection. I'd like to hear who chose and why, because this crowd, one meeting before, did not have one flag. That's the question. I can explain that. I purchased it on iStock. All I can say is that in, in um, various journal articles that I've read about meetings of you know the IKP, they, they, there are pictures of women waving Turkish flags. Whether they purchased them off iStock as well, I have no idea. So that's good. you've got to talk to the Guardian and it's AFP and so on. After the part to criticize for not having any Turkishness in them because of the Islamic idea doesn't need that flag. That's that's why. Oh, is that because of the Ottoman There was not one flag. The meeting before, the next meeting there were thousands. Um, well, I, I suppose without having seen it, it's hard to comment on, but um, do, do you have anything to add? What's your point about yeah, it? Why, why we chose this picture? Why the meeting before no flags? Why this meeting thousands of flags? The meeting before. What's, what changed? Because they were criticised. They were criticised of not taking up thinking about Turkey at all. Turkishness wasn't in their meetings. The next meeting, thousands of flags distributed. They had flags in there. And the meeting before, what was it about? They AKP meetings. There are thousands of them. But the flags appeared after a certain period. Um, what, uh, did you have any thoughts on, uh, on this issue? I think one of the one of the things that's come out of this uh, image yeah, is that we've got we've got an interesting discussion. So I know. <laughs> I don't know if everyone understood what. Uh, the question here, the, uh, if I'm, please correct me, you're trying to say that that flag 
right now Turkish flag does not represent the AKP. No, no, no, this is not my claim. We say that Turkey under AKP, out of thousands of photos, this one was chosen. My question, why? Because this never reflected AKP's world before. Because their meetings had AKP flags, or like this woman wears some banners, or this or that, or four fingers, whatever, but never Turkish flag. No, no, it's, uh, I, I would disagree with you, uh, okay. because, you know, flag, Turkish flag is like a weapon. <laughs> so it's a sacred thing, okay, a sacred national symbol, and it can be used by any party in Turkey. So it, it's, uh, it was used consciously, and it can be used today, tomorrow, consciously again. Uh, by masses, it, uh, masses can be forced to carry flags and all those demonstrations uh, against the against the uh, Kurds, for instance. Okay, so they can, it can be a statement against terrorism. It can be a statement for secularism. It can be a statement against Islamism. So it depends. It is a uh, symbol which can be claimed by any party, any ideological group in Turkey, right? because everyone. Mm, claims that he or she is the real Turk. Okay, <laughs> so, so, so I'm the best Turk as an AKP supporter. I'm the ideal Turk, so I should have that. Right? Uh, everyone is trying to exclude the other <laughs> using that flag. Right? So that's why AKP would never leave that symbol. So I, I in that sense, I would disagree with you. Uh, once it was used, and it would be used again, especially today, actually, given the current situation. Thank you. I've got some questions up the back and then one at the front. Um, we don't have too much time left, so maybe um, very concise questions so we can get around to that one. Hi. Um, earlier, in response to your question, um, in, in response to the question, you said something along the lines of um, strong opposition. Um, do you remember that bit? Strong opposition. There needs to be strong opposition. Um, I guess my question is, um, there needs to be strong opposition in order to, for, for the government to change and the secular um, state to prevail. Um, where do you see that coming from? How do you, how do you see that forming, shaping, um, in an environment where the democratic culture isn't embedded? That's the question. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, uh, wonderful question. Uh, I used to be pessimistic, but since 2013, the Gezi events, uh, I learned something. <laughs> okay, I witnessed history, and I learned that uh, uh, we can change history. So we can, we really, as I consider myself as uh, part of the opposition, yeah, and uh, Although as an individual, not, I'm not uh, referring to any political party right now, but as someone opposing the AKP uh, government, I do believe that you know uh, somehow people can come together in the name of their rights, you know, they, they, for demanding freedom. So that's happened. So I would never imagine that such a thing would happen in Turkey, because it was not a, just an Istanbul-based event. It, it's not, it wasn't just a, a local protest. It, it happened everywhere, all over Turkey, in every single town. Uh, and but it was nothing a huge came mass out of it. protest. Hmm? Nothing came out of it. It uh, died. Okay, nothing came out of it, but it doesn't mean that it died. 
Where are they now? Where are they now? Dispersed. Dispersed. Dispersed. Dispersed at not not being able to to be channeled to a part of you know in that sense. But there is a there is a discontent. You know, 50% of the people do not vote for AKP. So they are the people. So but AKP thinks that they are not the people. They are not the real nation. But they are half of the population. And within the AKP supporters as well, there are those who are not that happy. But they do vote for AKP because there is no other alternative. Okay. Maybe an alter, maybe not the party that I would like will emerge soon. I don't know which party. Maybe it will be a right wing party, an, another nationalist party, probably. No. Uh, but it will be a uh, hope for people if it allies itself with liberals, with some. Uh, social democrats, etc. So such a coalition of opposition is needed. Uh, so it's, I, I know that my ideal party will not uh, be formed and succeed and will bring democracy to Turkey. I know that. You know, I, uh, I will be. I will always feel marginal in life in society. But uh, as when I look at history, twentieth century history, Turkey, I see that there has been always a development a kind of uh, reaction. Uh, look at the, the Republican People's Party, the single party regime ended. Mm. Why not the AKP? <laughs> mm. I think that's one thing that I'd like to take out of um, the, the talk and the response is that there is a sense of hope. There is, but what's been happening, the, the recent developments do represent um, a way forward and there are people thinking uh, quite deeply about alternatives. Uh, I'm going to give it to David, and then we've got time for only one more question, unfortunately. But let's continue this discussion after the talk. I think that something that um, Ullet pointed out in her talk was that actually the Islamist camp stole the march on the other parties, in the sense that they did adapt. Uh, if you look from Erbakan to AKP, they did become more progressive. Whereas you look at the other parties, they haven't really, I think, changed their party platform. They were not pro-EU, uh, and uh, they, they weren't really pushing for reform packages and so on. So I think that hope that people were looking for was actually represented in them because they did play the democracy card. They did suggest that maybe they, that there had been a shift, but you haven't seen that on the other side of politics. And I think it's not going to happen until you either do get a new party emerging or there's some sort of radical shift within the opposition party. It's really been a... A lot of scholars call it a collapse of the, the, you know, the political system in the sense that there is no opposition, really. And it also comes back to what I was saying before is that there needs to be internal renewal within those parties. There needs to be new ideas... They need to get rid of their leaders, and there needs to be democratic um, processes within those parties, and that will lead, I think, to change in the process. If that doesn't happen, you're going to have stagnation, which is what you've had. So, like, people like Bachelet needs to go, um, you know, and people, I guess, I mean, for better or for worse, I mean, when people looked at um, Demirtas and they thought, well, someone who's fresh, someone who's new, and he was getting votes from, like, the LGBTQI community, from, from other liberals, because he was talking about human rights, minority rights, things like that. These things aren't on the agenda of other parties, and I think if that sort of broader perspective comes in, then something can happen. But I, I'm, I'm still a pessimist. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Look, I'd like to um, throw in a new perspective in the discussion, which is surprisingly was not mentioned in both of your uh, uh, excellent uh, presentations, there, which is the role of the Turkish army. Uh, like, I see Turkey, uh, probably its regime 
to a certain extent similar to other Middle Eastern, but probably not to the same extent, in a sense that the ruling class do not really reflect the majority of the people. So there's some sort of a contradiction between uh, the political elite and the, the rest of the nation. And, and every time convergence was happening, the Turkish army actually intervened. Uh, and like Adnan Manderis mentioned, he was executed by the Turkish army in a coup. And up, up, I think, until 1980 or something, there was a, a coup. So the Turkish army played a major role in suppressing this uh, representation of the Turkish people. So I see now the Turkish army's role being neutralized as a step towards, in a sense, representative democracy, probably not as much as we all like it, but nevertheless, in my opinion, it's a step, so I would like to see your opinion about that. Thank you for that question. Yeah, it's actually interesting that normally when we talk about secularism, we always mention the army, and for the first time, yeah, some, we, did <laughs> we did not. It's, uh, thanks for uh, uh, this remark. Uh, you're right, uh, maybe uh, our the reason why we forgot is, the, is because of the current situation of the army today, <laughs> totally pacified. Uh, it's uh, in, in terms of uh, democratic principles, uh, it's perfect because I never uh, uh, I never agreed with the idea of a secularism under the guardianship of the army. Uh, that was the case in the, under the Kemalist secularism. Uh, maybe that's the uh, problem that we have right now. Uh, maybe 50% or 40% of the uh, Turkish population uh, do want to protect the secular regime, but they don't have the army with them right now. Uh, so that's, uh, that's something new that Turkish society experiences. Uh, back in 2007, the masses were uh, rushing to the mausoleum of Ataturk in support of secularism, and they knew that the army was with them. Okay, right now the situation is different. The army is in line with the government, right? So it's uh, as in normal democracies. Uh, so maybe the real, the real struggle began now. So uh, if Turkey will be a secular country, uh, then it will be uh, thanks to to the success of the secularists uh, who managed to uh, establish a new regime altogether. Because as I tried to explain in my uh, lecture, uh, the legacy of secularism has many problems. But the former, the Kemalist secularism, cannot be defendable right now. So because of its contradictions with democracy. And current secularism of the AKP you know, has many problems, as I tried to explain. So we do need to uh, begin a real debate on secularism in Turkey. What kind of uh, society do we want to live in? Uh, what, what will be the real relationship between religion and the state? Uh, is the existence of an institution like Presidents of Religious Affairs, the Anet, is it acceptable in a true secular society? 
my, I don't say, I don't say it's not it's not possible to have anything like that. So, but all these things should be discussed in public. Uh, right now we don't have it, but we do have to do it. Uh, many several intellectuals uh, are uh, trying to do this, but in the current condition where uh, public space is more and more shrinking, it's getting difficult. Uh, a real discussion cannot happen because Erdogan says, oh, yeah, secularism is important, of course. And then the debate ends. <laughs> so he's, he's ending all kinds of discussions here. Uh, you cannot really uh, go on. But uh, at least many people like me, you know, it's, uh, I was saying the same thing five years ago, but uh, very few people would agree with me. But right now, uh, secularism is again beginning to be taken seriously. So the heritage, a new secularism, which is not marked by the heritage. Okay. So we, we, we, a new secularism of the future needs to be built by uh, the people. Thank you very much. We've run out of time, but final comment on the army. I'll make it very brief. Uh, I think I agree with the, the, the central idea that you can't have military tutelage in a democratic polity uh, because you can't keep pushing the reset button. I, I, I would think that... It's been extremely detrimental to democratic development in, in Turkey by just keeping to dissolve and ban and, and, and obviously execute um, democratically elected uh, leaders, even if they were perhaps going down a somewhat authoritarian path. Um, in, in the sense that if you look at what happened, I think after the 1980 reset, you had a Motherland Party which came in, which was kind of a weird convergence of sort of the, the secular acceptance of the state, but also having a religious orientation with Turgut Özal, so you had this kind of hybrid, and that wasn't the intention of the uh, the military to have that party come in. So I think that what you see is you see that they were they were it's like um, trying to hold the, the damn wall, if you like, and they kept trying to hold the damn wall. And so I think it's a, a really positive step. Um, and it, I mean, even if you look at it almost as there was a a coup, a soft coup again in 2008, the economy went into almost freefall in 2008, leading up to that court decision. So. The idea of just dissolving parties and removing parties is not the way forward. So I think there has to be a different pathway. So I think that's actually a good thing. Yeah. Two excellent responses. Thank you very much. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for being here tonight. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, we hope to see you again. I'd like to thank NASA, Lily, of course, Meredith from Sydney Ideas, and Sydney Ideas in general, and of course our speakers, Umut and David. Thank you very much. Can we just have a letter? <laughs>